You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. The pre-owned watch market, projected to total around $30 billion in 2025, has been growing exponentially to the point that within five to 10 years, it is likely to account for half of the global watch market, according to Deloitte. After surging in 2021 and the beginning of this year, prices for most popular pre-owned Rolex Patek Philippe and Audemars Piguet watches has started to slide as the market has been flooded with supply. While secondhand prices of the most traded Rolex watches have taken a dip, their return on investment has outperformed stocks, real estate, and gold. The rise of the pre-owned market has also managed to attract a slew of enthusiasts who are shifting the market with differing buying habits. Women, millennials, and Gen Z have been rising consumer segments fueling the secondary luxury boom. My guest today on The Luxury Item is Paul Altieri, founder and CEO of Bob's Watches, the world's largest online exchange of Rolexes, buying and selling certified pre-owned models, both contemporary and vintage. Paul is a lifelong watch enthusiast and one of the industry's top vintage Rolex experts with decades worth of experience and an extensive collection of both vintage and modern timepieces. Welcome to The Luxury Item, Paul. Hi, Scott. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining me. So you purchased the company in 2010 from Bob Thompson and relaunched it as an online marketplace that exclusively sells pre-owned Rolex watches. And today you sell other luxury watch brands too, but Rolex is your bread and butter. I think at about 90% of your stock, the pre-owned luxury market, I don't have to tell you is, is growing really fast. So back in 2010, what was the state of the pre-owned luxury watch market like, and where did you see the opportunity at the time? Yeah, good question, Scott. So thanks for having me, really. It's, been, it's, it's great to be here. Uh, and I love talking about watches and, and the business and the industry in general. So thanks for having me. Sure. You know, back, back in 2008 and 2009, believe it or not, it, it, it's almost like it was prehistoric times of dinosaurs <laughs> were, were roaming the, the earth. Uh, but really, there was only eBay and Craigslist, if you could imagine that back then. Yes, there were other little mom and pop dealers here and there, uh, but no one was really embracing the Internet, embracing technology. Uh, and there was Craigslist and, and eBay, and they were really pretty horrible solutions for consumers back then. So on Craigslist, were you really going to meet someone at a coffee shop and maybe do, you know, sell your, your watch or buy a watch, you know, that that's kind of risky and and a little dangerous depending on where you live. Uh, And eBay was really not much better because, you know, eBay continues today. It's even worse today than it used to be not to pick on eBay, uh, but they're an easy target, Scott. Uh, You know, they have an integrity problem. Uh, You don't know who you're buying from really on eBay uh, or or what kind of product you're buying. And, And a saying in the industry goes is, always buy the seller before you buy the product. You know, am I buying something that's 100% real, whether it's a Rolex or a Panerai or a Breitling? And back then, you know, people didn't know. And, and still today, you, you don't know who you're buying from on eBay or if it's going to be real. So back then I said, look, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better solution for consumers. There was no Kelly Blue Book back then for watches. So I said, let's let's do an open pricing model. Let's be transparent. Let's be the good guys. Let's be the honest company that comes along and, and we'll post everything. We'll post the buy price, the sell price, and we'll we'll be transparent and honest and people can see both prices. And so uh, the dealers obviously hated us, but uh, the consumers loved it 
uh, they embraced it. They, they needed it. They wanted it. And I said, you know, we'll, we'll pay $4,000 for that watch. That's worth 5,000. We'll sell it at $5,000, Scott, not nine. And we won't buy it at two. We're going to make a very slim margin and we'll make it up on volume and we'll be completely transparent and honest. And uh, I got to admit though, when we first launched uh, back in 2010, uh, you know, it didn't start off with a bang, you know, weeks went by and we didn't buy or sell a watch. And I said, God, this sounded like such a great idea on paper. Yeah. But then, you know, well, watch came in and then one day we did two transactions and then three and, you know, the rest is history. Here we are fast forward 12 years and uh, it's really, it's really gone very well. Yeah. So what's the road been like in getting the company to where it is today? You know, it's been a lot of hard work, really. Uh, and I've got a great, great bunch of people that work for me. Uh, my, my wife joined us almost immediately. She is our chief operating officer, Carol. She's responsible for all the day-to-day -day operations. She set up all the business processes in the company. And then Joe came along, our CFO, Joe Alessandrini, and he's been terrific as well. Uh, he's a CPA by, by, by trade. <laughs> but but he can take apart watches and fix them and repair them and uh, price them and, and everything is in between. But I've got a great bunch of people. There's almost 50 of us here that work, Scott. So it's, I can't take credit for it. It's been a, a, a lot of hard work from a lot of, a lot of good people. And the pre-owned luxury watch marketplace is a very crowded space now. So how does Bob's Watches uniquely position itself against competitors like Watchbox, Crown & Caliber, Watchfinder, and others? Yeah. You know, Scott, over the years, having been, you know, doing this since 2010, we're going on 13 years now, you know, we've seen competitors come and go. There's been different names that have been around today. It's Watchbox and Crown and Caliber, but, you know, tomorrow might be someone different. We're still here. We're still standing. But, um, you know, uh, we've always we had a first mover advantage because, you know, launching and being first to do something, you know, there are advantages to it. You're a consultant, a business consultant, your background. So you, you can easily understand that mm -hmm. being first and, and early uh, it has its advantages. Uh, but beyond that, um, you know, our mantra, our business philosophy has always been the good guys, you know, be, be the honest guys. It's all about authenticity. It's all about, you know, taking care of the customer. Uh, some of these other companies have raised tens of millions of dollars or even hundreds of millions. And so they're, they're, they're answering to a board or a venture capital group or a private equity group or a bank. And they want you to hit milestones and, or, or revenue targets. We, we don't have any of that. We, we don't have any debt. We don't have any shareholders. There's no VC money. So we get to focus on the customer. Uh, and, and I think that's what helps differentiate us from, from everybody else in the marketplace today. Uh, and, and we also, I believe, have the best uh, certified uh, the, the, a real certified pre-owned program. So we partnered with a company called Watch CSA mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, and they exclusively provide certified pre-owned services for us. So yes, we certify them ourselves. Uh, when they come in, we authenticate every watch that comes in. We make sure it's 100% authentic. Uh, we'll replace parts as needed if we have to, but by the time we put that watch on our site, Scott, it's 100% authentic. Uh, and I think that's what helps differentiate us. I think we just come, come about it a different way. We've always been about the consumer. Honesty, integrity has always been number one for us. Um, 
And it, it's worked. How are you doing this year? I mean, obviously the, the secondary luxury watch market is gangbusters. Um, I don't know if you could share what your revenue is this year and how does it compare to last year or even a percentage? How are, th- how are things going? Yeah, let me get you over an NDA. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm an open book. Uh, I'm proud of what we've done all here, uh, all of us. Uh, we've been growing year over year, at least 30% a year, 35% year over year. And this year, we, we continued. We were up over 40% January through May. And then, you know, the kind of the wheels came off a little bit. Uh, but I think we'll still grow. You know, we're hoping to grow 10% this year, which is not our typical robust 30 or 35%. Uh, obviously, there's some headwinds right now in the economy, right. the stock market. You've got a war going on in Russia. You've got oil and gas problems here and there. Uh, so we, we certainly got our, our headwinds. We've got inflation that's just driving people crazy. That seems to be uh, the number one subject on people's minds. We've got some insert, you know, uncertainty uh, you know, legislatively in Washington, D.C. We've got midterms coming up. So there's a lot of uncertainty going on right now. But I think the biggest thing is, is the stock market. I think people wake up in the morning, you know, they look at their portfolio, they look at their 401k, uh, and they feel poorer today than they did six months ago. But, but I think, look, this country is resilient, never bet against America. It'll come back. Uh, and, and I think we are tied to that fortune in, in some respects. Uh, but, but, you know, I think in six months, eight months, we'll, we'll be out of it. Luxury watches have been holding their value better than the stock market in gold. And they've performed better. We did a study, a 10-year study just about eight months ago and released it. You know, we compared it to the S&P and the Dow and gold and, and real estate and everything else. And it came out on top. Uh, yeah. So, yes, they've been very, very good investments over the last 10 years. Now, Bob's Watches doesn't have a formal relationship with Rolex. Do you consult with Rolex at all on some of the nuances around authenticity or value or condition on certain timepieces? We do not. No, we don't have any kind of formal relationship or open communication line with them. But uh, look, we respect them greatly. We love what they've done. They're an iconic brand. I put them up there with Apple and a few other uh, amazing companies out there, what they've done. Uh, and so we, we really value uh, the, the products that they produce and uh, the quality and the craftsmanship, but we don't have any formal relationship, no. Now, since the pandemic, a combination of growth and hype has generated frenzy resulting in a completely new wave of watch wearing and purchasing habits. And the secondary market for high-end watches is stronger than ever. What have been the growth drivers? Well, I think first and foremost is just the internet. Uh, I think, you know, that, that is the wave of the future. Uh, the internet is not some fad that that's going to go away tomorrow morning or anytime soon. Uh, I think every dollar that gets spent on the internet, Scott, is a dollar that doesn't get spent on Main Street. And some of that is sad in a way because, you know, we depend on those local merchants. Uh, but, but I think what's driving it is, is enthusiasm. I think the media has played a big part in it. Uh, people are more comfortable buying products now today online, uh, even expensive products. I think the luxury consumer, I know your, your podcast is called The Luxury Item. Uh, and so you, you probably understand this. I think the luxury consumer, in my opinion, was sort of late to the game to embrace you know, uh, the online world. Uh, it's buying a watch for $12,000 or twenty or forty dollars uh, is different than buying a book on Amazon at $17. And so I think that consumer had to have a lot of trust and faith and confidence in who they were buying from. 
uh, and the whole process, the gateway, the payments and FedEx and, you know, it all had to come together at once. And I think it's driving all this growth for online. You've got companies like The Real Real uh, that went public a few years ago. Right. They're doing real well. They focus more on the female consumer but and handbags, but it's still in that secondary market. There's been a lot of other additional players that have come in the market and sort of validated uh, that. I mean, I'm, you and I, between you and I'm not about to go buy a used pair of sneakers. So I have, <laughs> maybe I'm a little different than some other consumers. I'll buy a, a pre-owned watch and, and, you know, maybe clean it up a little bit and wear it and be happy with it. Even a vintage watch that's been around 50 years, I'm comfortable, but may, I may not be comfortable wearing, you know, a, a pair of shoes or sneakers that, that have been around. So I, I don't quite get all of the resale, um, but it is booming. Correct. It's booming for a lot of different reasons and, and it's going to continue to grow. Yeah. And luxury timepieces have been on a wild ride this year, particularly in the secondary market. Earlier this year, there was a surge of trade for top tier pre-owned luxury timepieces from the likes of Rolex and Patek. And then the market slumped this late spring. Now Morgan Stanley's forecasting the secondhand market to fall further amid a whole supply glut. What factors do you attribute to this valuation roller coaster ride this year? So, you know, my, my answer to that has always been it's a, it's a classic supply and demand uh, ratio that, that's going on right now. And, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when we launched, we would sell watches that were about 25 to 40 percent below the retail price. So a $10,000 watch, we would be selling at 7000 or 6000 even. And little by little by little, that supply has just stayed stayed constant, but demand just keeps growing. China and Asia and, and even America and Europe. So demand for mostly Rolex. I'm, when I speak, I'm mostly speaking about Rolex, but, but it, it applies to other brands as well, luxury item brands. But in the, pre, in the Rolex world, you know, they're, they're making a finite supply of watches every year, and, but demand just keeps increasing. So when that happens, price have to go up. So the supply is still restrained. There's, you know, 10 buyers for every Rolex that gets made or more around the world. When you walk in an AD today, an authorized dealer around the world, the shop is completely empty. The showcases are empty and they have no product to sell. And that is also driving the secondary market as well, because if you want to buy a watch, you've got to come to Bob's or you got to come to someone like us because there's an availability problem. And until that changes, I don't, I don't see any, I don't see prices dropping drastically. And before you're talking about, um, you know, different effects from market turmoil and rising energy prices and inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Are you seeing a more restrained consumer? No, I again. I think the stock market has got the biggest uh, effect on on consumer sentiment, with us at least in the luxury world we we play in. Uh, but no, we what we have seen we're still selling the same amount of watches we did, but our average order value has dropped. So a year ago it was almost thirteen thousand, uh, and today it's a little over eleven thousand. So it's eleven thousand five hundred. So we have seen that drop uh, about ten percent. So that's the, the, the big change that we've seen. Uh, why maybe people are being a little bit more frugal on, on what they're buying uh, and they're not buying the expensive items. Uh, but, but that's what we've seen in the, in the marketplace today. 
And Rolex watches have been extremely difficult to find in retail from authorized dealers. There have been endless discussions about the degree to which this may or may not be due to various factors. You know, these include deliberate holding back Rolex of watches from retailers, deliberate hoarding of stock by retailers in order to increase street price, shortages in production due to pandemic-related factory closures, and so on. Rolex has officially said that the shortage is purely <laughs> due to unprecedented demand, and they can't increase supply without compromising quality. Do you think it's as simple as supply and demand, or do you think there's something more? Absolutely. No, I think it's just supply and demand. Uh, I think there are quality you know, luxury uh, brand, they're not going to sacrifice, you know, the craftsmanship to, to produce more. But I think also when you look at Rolex, look at also Hermes and Louis Vuitton and, and some of these in Prada and some of these other high-end brands. Uh, if you walk in a typical Hermes store, and this has been true the last five or 10 years, and you want to buy a Birkin bag, you've never been able to walk in a Hermes store and buy a Birkin bag. So they always produce less than what demand is. I think in Rolex's case, it's just exacerbated. It's 10 times, 20 times. So there's 20 people that want to buy that Rolex Samaritan, uh, unlike the Birkin bag, where there may be one or two for every one that's produced. Um, so I, I don't think it's, it's anything different. I don't think they're doing anything manipulative uh, with the market Rolex. I think they're just producing quality product uh, like they've always done. I don't think they're going to increase demand. It's not like Nike. Where, where they, they estimate they need you know, a billion pairs of sneakers uh, next year. But if demand you know, is up 30% over their projection, they'll just go out and you know, make 30% more. Rolex and luxury items, they, they don't operate that way. They operate on scarcity and exclusivity. Now, an editor for one of the online watch publications wrote the demand for unobtainable Rolex watches or any other coveted timepieces, he said, quote unquote, comes from speculators and has nothing to do with the love for watches anymore. The watch has become a status symbol again, more than ever. Do you agree? Look, uh, we just had uh, an executive come down from L.A. that's uh, a big executive at a uh, radio uh, company, radio station, and they're a big conglomerate nationally. And he's the executive vice president, and he's buying his fourth Rolex from us. Uh, he loves putting it on his wrist. I sat with him in the lobby for about 20 minutes, and we just talked watches. He loves watches. He loves putting that watch on his wrist, and he loves looking down at it when he's driving or, or having dinner or having a cocktail. And I don't think anything has changed, Scott, over, over the, you know, the past year or two. Um, I, I think people enjoy these products. I think it you you buy a Rolex or you wear a Rolex, it means a lot more than just an instrument to tell time. I think this guy is really proud to have one on his wrist. He loves everything about it. He just bought a Panerai yesterday, but he's bought four Rolexes from us as well. Um, I think people enjoy, and I, I still would argue that Rolex makes an affordable luxury product. I know it's $12,000 or eleven, but I still think it's affordable luxury compared to like maybe a paddock that's 50 or 100,000 or an Audemars Piquet that's 40 or 50 or 70. I mean, that's a chunk of money for people uh, compared to a Rolex. You know, there's still a sense of that pre-owned and particularly gray market watch sales are viewed in Switzerland as a CD byproduct rather than a welcome opportunity to grow the overall industry. Do you see any progress being made on that front? You know, I think it kind of fixed itself, Scott. Five years ago, maybe or more, uh, you know, dealers would have 
you know, overstock items possibly on their shelf. Uh, and they would, you know, move them maybe out the back door or the side door. Uh, but now they, they can't keep up with their own customers coming in the front door. And so I think the gray market has kind of gone away on its own organically, which is the best way. Uh, but I think brands, they, they've never liked the gray market dealers. They, they don't want to wake up in the morning, whether you're Oris or Omega or, or any other high-end brand and, and wake up and see, you know, your, your brand new products being sold on Amazon or Joma Shop or some of these other discounters at 20 or 30% off. So um, it, it's never a good thing for the brand. It, 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 it hurts the brand. And, uh, and, and I think that's gone away. So the gray market on its own has just kind of gone, gotten taken care of on its own. And it seems there are endless ways to sell a luxury watch these days from posting a watch on Instagram with a relevant hashtag or, you know, consigning a piece to a live auction to retail store dealers, collector meetups and other platforms, this coinciding with the growth of the secondary market. So it seems confusing for someone who wants to sell their luxury watch. How does a seller make sense of all these platforms? Well, I think the media, again, has done a, a great job of, of, you know, educating consumers. And I think Google and, and the online world as well, you can go online and learn about anything. You can learn about Amsterdam and restaurants, fish restaurants in, in you know, in Northern Ireland. And, and I think all that information is out there. And I think consumers have have done a great job. They're they're educated today. The consumer today online is much different than the consumer 10 or 20 years ago. Very much more sophisticated. They know exactly what they want. They do a lot of research before they sell a watch or before they buy a watch. Uh, and, and people always ask me, you know, how do you find, uh, you know, these watches? So incredible, you know, 90% of what we do, Scott, too, is, is modern watches. But there's about 10% of what we, what we do uh, that's vintage. And, and that's where I come in. And I love the vintage uh, pieces, the timepieces. I've got a huge personal collection on my own. But people always ask me, you know, how do you find these watches? And I, my answer is always the standard reply. I don't find them. They find me. They've read about me on the media, on Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, or Rob Report or somewhere. And they found out, you know, that we buy watches. And if, if it's a watch that I really want, I'm not afraid to pay full retail for it either. Uh, so th to answer your question, people selling watches, they're educated today. The media has done a great job. Online has done a great job. It's out there. All that information is out there. If you want to find a good way to sell your watch today, you can. You just go online and, and search around. And of course, we come up number one or number two. So we do get the lion's share of that, of that business. But people find us because they, and they sell to us because they trust us. You know, we, we don't play games with people. Uh, we give them a price, an estimate, a best estimate that we think we can pay them. Uh, and then we, we mark it up 30%. We, we don't hide that. We just want to make a 30% markup, which is not a lot. At the end of the day, we're hoping to make 5 or 10% net. Um, and it's been a great business and we love it. Rolex always seems to be ranked the highest among luxury brands that forge emotional bonds between their customers. So it's no surprise that it is also one of the most counterfeited luxury brands and that's why Rolex is frequently involved in trademark infringement and counterfeiting lawsuits. With Rolex's stringent set of requirements for watches that it considers to be authentic, how does Bob's watches certify that the pre-owned Rolex watches aren't fakes? You know, we, we've done a pretty good job over the years of, of seeing a number of fakes. Uh, you know, and, and the easy fakes, Scott, the $50 fakes are coming out of China or wherever. 
the $75 fakes, they're pretty easy to see from even 10 feet away. Occasionally, we get what we call the super fake, the super fake counterfeits in that are $500, let's say, fake watches, and they're incredibly good. And we have a team here of watchmakers and evaluators that will take the whole watch apart if we have to, to make sure uh, it's 100% authentic. Uh, maybe, maybe in a year, Scott, maybe one, one watch will get by us, but there's so many pairs of eyes that have to see it. So we've got the, the initial evaluator, we've got the watchmaker, then we've got the, the actual watchmaking facility that's going to clean the watch, restore it, repair it, service it. Um, and then it comes back and a, a, another watchmaker has got to inspect it again. So there's like five or six or seven pairs of eyes on that watch before it gets put on the site. So by that time, someone is going to notice it. But uh, the watch is completely restored um, and, and repaired as needed. Uh, so we do a pretty good job at finding those fakes, even if they are the super fakes. You know, women have become a rising consumer segment within the male-dominated watch industry. You know, frustrated by lackluster product offerings and sexist marketing campaigns, women have become increasingly vocal about what they want in a watch. Have you seen a rising number of female clients? You know, I think I think that's a, a great topic, Scott. You know, uh, 15 years ago, I remember being on a family trip in Europe, and we had just landed early in the morning in Paris, and we got on one of those little shuttle buses that take you off to the terminal. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there, and two women walked in, maybe they were in their 30s, and they came in, and they were wearing men's stainless steel Rolex watches. And I had never seen a woman wear a men's size watch. And I remember hitting Carol, my wife, and saying, hey, look, I thought it was so sexy and so cool. And I had never seen it before. And it hadn't made its way to America yet, but eventually it did. And of course, it's here now. And, and I love the fact that, you know, women are buying men's watches. They're still buying ladies models as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I welcome that. And I think it's really cool. And I love to see it uh, because it opens the market up for us as well. But we have made strides to try to appeal to, to the women consumer uh, more and more over the years. But let's face it, guys are easier targets. You know, they, they like sports, they like watches, maybe they like apparel to some extent, and they like cars. Uh, women are a little bit more sophisticated and they've got, um, you know, they've got shoes and parenting and skin and lifestyle and hair and handbags and shoes. And, uh, so it's, it's a little bit more complicated to market to that, to the woman. but. But we, we are making strides in, in, that, in that direction. According to last year's Deloitte Swiss watch industry study, the shift toward pre-owned market is particularly strong among young consumers with 42% of millennials and 34% of Gen Z saying they would buy a pre-owned luxury watch. How does that compare to what you're seeing in your business? So, you know, I think 10 years ago or, or, or more, uh, I think if, if somebody did a study on the, the average buyer of a, a pre-owned Rolex, I think the age would have probably been, you know, 40 or, or north of 40 years old. And I think today it, it's much younger and, and we're seeing numbers down in 32 years old and 34 and sometimes 28 and 29. Uh, and I think it speaks to just the, the, the iconic nature of, of the Rolex brand. And it's appealing to even a, a younger demographic. Uh, and, and I think that's so cool. And it's a testament to the, to the job that, that Rolex has done, but, but also Paddock and, and, you know, and AP and Panerai and, and Breitling even, 
you know, they spend a lot of money in marketing dollars with Brad Pitt and um, George Clooney and, you know, some other big, big name influencers. And uh, they do a, a really good job at marketing. And yes, it is a younger audience we're seeing. So what's the difference between America's relationship with pre-owned luxury watches and other regions of the world that you've seen? Well, I think I think in the vintage world, what we've seen is that uh, you know it was really the Italians and the French that that started this whole crazy collection movement of uh, Paul Newman and, and vintage watches, and we're go we're, we're talking late late '80s and early '90s uh, when they started to embrace that, that that you know the vintage collection market, mm-hmm. uh, and and obviously it's it's alive and well here in in the U.S., but um, I, I think, look, vintage uh, timepieces and, and Rolex in general uh, really drive the enthusiasm for the product. So when you see a Paul Newman Rolex sell at auction or somewhere online for 10 million or 20 million, you know, it grabs a lot of attention for the brand and it's exciting and it's fun and people read it and they say, oh my God, how can a watch be worth 20 million or 10 million or 5 million? Uh, so I think it, it does a lot for the brand. Uh, it does a lot for the pre-owned business, but I think it's the same in Europe as it is the U.S. I think the world has gotten smaller. I think the Internet's helped make it smaller, the media. It's a small world we live in today, so we all play in that same market. How much business do you do over in China? You know, not a whole lot. We do, we do a fair amount with, with Hong Kong, but not China mainland directly, no. Right. So maybe 5% or less of our sales are going to Hong Kong. Do you see that as an opportunity for growth for Bob's? We do, but I think it's a little bit more sophisticated market to get there and market there uh, with limitations and the government being involved and shipping, you know, into China is a little bit more challenging. Uh, But I think the consumer there is more oriented to what we deliver at Bob's, which is they want authenticity. They don't want a product that's got an aftermarket dial or an aftermarket uh, bezel. And so I think they would welcome Bob's and they would welcome a brand that's going to come in there and deliver what they want uh, on, online, the ease of buying online and, you know, with, with a good and reputable name that's going to stand behind it, that it's 100% authentic. Uh, so that's first and foremost on their mind. We'd love to get and find a way to get into China. It's, you know, it's, it's on our five-year projection plan. We're not ready to get in there today, but it is a big, a big market. And in September, Bob's Watches hosted an auction of a unique collection of tropical dial Rolex sports watches, including a lineup of pieces from the 60s and 70s. How did that go? It went great. We had uh, 1,200 registered bidders. Uh, each watch got about 15 or 20 bids on it. Uh, every one of them sold you know, at or near its market uh, value or price. And it's always fun to do something like that. And you know what? what's great about the auctions and the reason why we did it, and we built our own proprietary auction platform right on bobswatches.com. So we own the technology that's behind it. So we can change or edit or, or, or uh, modify the, the way it works. But we think we've built something that really appeals to consumers. So we don't charge a bias commission like, like eBay does or, or the auction houses. Uh, most of the auction houses are charging 25%, Scott. We don't charge anything. What you bid is what you pay. So we've always been about delivering value to the consumer. We don't need to charge it because we own it. It's paid for, but it does very well. But in the end, it's hard to price and market uh, a watch 
that's that's 1969. It's got a tropical orange dial, uh, and maybe there's only 20 left in the world that have this tropical uh, dial feature to it. So it's harder to price it. So the good thing about an auction is you put it up at auction, you you advertise it well enough worldwide, and and you let people bid it and let the market take it. So it's a much more efficient way to price and value an item and giving everybody an open opportunity to bid and buy it. Uh, so, so that's what we like about the auction. Why do Rolex tropical dial watches usually get hefty premiums at auction? Uh, they're unique. Uh, every one of them slightly different. One could be red, one could be orange, one could be uh, you know, a, a yellow. Uh, and, and I think it appeals. A, a lot of the Asian buyers uh, the Asian market, they, they love those tropical dials. I mean, they do here in the US and Europe as well, uh, but they're, they're so unique uh, and they're, they're a showstopper. When you walk in a restaurant or a cocktail party and you've got a Submariner that's got an orange dial and someone looks down, it's, it's you know, having a cocktail and they look down and they say, what the heck is on your wrist? <laughs> you know, it's a conversation piece. Um, and so that's kind of what I like about, about vintage watches. Uh, a lot of them are all unique and they've got unique characteristics. They're rare. Some of them are even super rare. Uh, and I think it drives, drives enthusiasm for the brand. There are some people who believe the pre-owned watch market will consolidate fewer players. There will be more takeovers and mergers. And we're, still, we're seeing some of it now. Do you see Bob's watches remaining independent? We, we plan to stay independent. Uh, Caroline, we don't have any plans to you know, merge or, or, or sell. Uh, anytime soon. We love what we do. We, we love the business. We love watches. We love the internet. Uh, but, I, but I do think that like any other industry that's come along in, you know, in the last hundred years, you know, it matures and, and it goes through its maturation cycle. And you end up with, you know, two or three dominant players, uh, perhaps in, in the market. Uh, and I think it's probably going to happen here as well. We're, we're starting to see it now. I think a barrier to entry look launching a, a, a new company today is much more difficult than it was 10 years ago or even 20, you know, at the, at the beginning of the internet. It's much harder to get on page one for any kind of consumer product than it was 10 years ago. So that's sort of a kind of a barrier to entry today. It, it takes, it would take millions of dollars today, Scott, to, to launch Bob's in a lot more time uh, than it was 12 years ago. So we're lucky in that sense. We were an early, early uh, mover in, in, in the uh, marketplace. And Bob's Watches is an online marketplace, but you have offices in Newport Beach, California, which is your headquarters in New York City and Miami. What is your growth strategy for the next five years? You know, right now, if we can continue to grow organically at 20 or 30% with all, with mostly online, uh, with just those physical stores, you know, look, operating stores is a, is a big drain on, on operating and, and costs. They're expensive to run. They're expensive to keep open. Uh, but, but I'm not going to rule out that someday we won't have stores across, you know, the U.S. I mean, I'd love to have a store in London, Paris, New York, Chicago, all the big markets uh, someday. So I'm not going to rule it out. But, it, but it's, uh, it's, it's not on the immediate drawing board in the next few years. So, Paul, my final question is the luxury item question that I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one single luxury item with you, 
what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off the island or anything that requires mobile service. So you can call somebody to get you off that island. It's just you, lots of sand, lots of ocean, and a couple, maybe some palm trees. What would that one luxury item you would like to have with you? Wow, that's a trick question. That's kind of a curveball. Can I get back to you next week? You gotta know right now. <laughs> gotta know right now. Uh, probably a, a Samaritan watch or a, or a sea dweller. And I say that because I'm gonna probably be doing a lot of swimming uh, in the ocean or surfing perhaps, because uh, there's water all around me. Uh, it seems the most logical to me and I can keep track of the time and maybe the date. Paul Altieri, founder and CEO of Bob's Watches. Thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Scott, thanks so much. It's been fun to be here. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.